One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Alison Rudd of The Times and John Cross of The Daily Mirror. Jurgen Klopp calls it a championship of will. The pace is unrelenting. The pressure can only increase. Liverpool are at the top of the league with six games to go. Is their 29-year wait for the title coming to a close? Manchester City? Well, they've still got four trophies in their sights. Will they need to win every game in the running? More questions than answers, aren't there? Well, we like questions. Yeah. The big question um, today, I feel, amongst people who commentate and earn a living from talking about football, is whether what we've seen from Liverpool of late is a form of resilience and willpower, as you mentioned, and a sort of energy that seems to be almost by deity means heading them towards a title win or whether what you're seeing is nervousness, self-doubt, inability to impose their superiority when it matters. And we won't, <laughs> you won't know the answer to that until the end of the season. And it might yet not be in Liverpool's hands anyway. It, it, it is interesting. I think probably it's wrong to construct a narrative from the recent games Liverpool have had and, 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 and come up with one theme. I think it's better to take each game in isolation. For example, at Anfield on Sunday, I felt it was a significant moment in Jurgen Klopp's tenure, actually, as a manager. He, he went very bold. He went almost recklessly bold. Liverpool ended up playing 4-2-4 formation. A lot of managers might have hauled off Mo Salah because he seemed to be in this strange mental vacuum where he felt it was down to him and him alone to get the winner. It didn't look like it would come. And yet his manager, who knows him better than anybody, could see that that urgency and desperation from Salah might actually reap rewards. And it did. It, didn't, it was an own goal, but it was created by Salah's almost hysteria, if you like. And I think for a manager in a title race that is so close to make that decision. And you can, you know, it was all too obvious how it could have gone wrong because Spurs kept breaking and really should have scored. Mm. But he had faith, I think, in, in his defence, Klopp, that they, you know, and we, and we saw again what a, what a uh, assured defender Virgil van Dijk is. And that, that boldness, almost stroke recklessness, you know, paid off so that when... Come the end of the season, I think it's good. It, come the end of the season, regardless of what happens, you know, if you're the manager of a team with with that talent and that fan base, if you've not been bold throughout, or at least at, at crucial moments, you, you you won't sleep well at night. I think you're more likely to sleep well knowing you did your utmost to be as brave as possible rather than being slightly negative. Yeah, because the standards are unprecedented almost, aren't they, John? Mm. You know, I, I think it was Dan Story on, on social media made the point yesterday that Liverpool are on course for the fourth biggest total in Premier League history, points total. Yet there's still probability as they'll finish second. Yeah, I, I think it's so neck and neck. Uh, probability, absolutely, because I guess Man City, if they win all their games, they will be champions. It's and the squad depth is absolutely. Right. And listen, I did. I, I like Dan a lot, and so you, you know, I did sort of kind of get into a bit of a Twitter discussion about it because Miguel Delaney sort of answered him back really and sort of said, you know, well, actually, isn't isn't it a form of bottling? I'm not sure that because the standards are so high, it seems incredibly harsh 
to compare what Liverpool's form has been like in recent times to the sort of bottling that we saw under, you know, Kevin Keegan with Newcastle, for example. There's been a couple of times when Arsenal's sort of form, even under sort of Wenger, fell off a cliff and they sort of That's lost absurd, it. isn't it? And, really? United, and sort of Liverpool lost it in, what, in 2009 with Benitez. So it's a different sort. But we have to be realistic about this and say that when Liverpool's dip came and City had one earlier in the season, Liverpool's dip was in the form of four draws in six games. And unfortunately, if you, if you tally that up, that's 18 points. And so they've won, they've won two, six, and then they're basically, you know, the other four draws, 10. You've won 10 points from 18. In this pace... That, unfortunately, is the reason why City railed re- re- Isn't that back the in. natural rhythm of a season? Of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. But City had theirs earlier in the season, but Liverpool's came when the pressure was on and all eyes on Liverpool because this is their chance to win it. I remember going to, to uh, Newcastle Man City back in January, I think it was, and N- Newcastle won that game and I thought, well, blimey, that's it. It's gone. This is Liverpool's title, and Liverpool had the Leicester the next day. And w- whether we like it or not, Leicester could have won that night. Ended up with a draw, and people were sort of people like me were saying well, Leicester feeling the title nerves a bit. They probably were a bit, but it was it, it, it is it makes for the drama. And I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong or right, but we have to be realistic about this. If Liverpool are playing absolutely at their best with no pressure on at all, of course they win the game. But the reason why they've slipped up along the way is, to my mind, they've suffered a little bit from nerves. And I, I, Liverpool might still end up winning the title, and if they do so, they'll have won it in, in style and with brilliant players and with such style and with such you know incredible attacking prowess. But I don't think we should be I don't think we should be worried about saying that whoever loses the title from here in has shown a little less nerve than the team who will eventually be champion. Is it nerve or is it you know, a collection of very small, minor flaws? If you take Liverpool as an example, they probably don't get enough creativity out of their midfield, so they've got to rely on the full-backs. You know, Andy Robertson was his ninth assist on Sunday. So they're, they're bombing on, assisting from the flanks, but they don't get the creativity perhaps they might need ultimately if they are the... the ultimate team from their midfield? Well, that, I don't think... I think it's almost the inverse of that. I think having a, a workmanlike, a relatively workmanlike midfield is, is Klopp's way of killing the nerves, actually. He's, he's saying, I'm going to put too much pressure on my team if they're expected... Everything, if everything is expected to be very beautiful and creative and just ping, ping, ping. At times, and at long periods in games, we need to be able to just suffocate the opposition. We need to be able to be sensible. We need to do make sensible, rather dull passes if necessary. Just make sure we read the game well and rely on the rest of the team to provide the creativity, as, as you say. But I do think when City have had their blips and have dropped points, that hasn't looked like nerves to me. That has looked like a very finely tuned machine just not clicking on the day and that's not nerves that's just that could be tiredness and it could be an inability to or not really realizing what the opposition were going to do how they were going to behave a bit of bad luck maybe and it's like a spanner in the works they just look like they don't quite know how to adjust their rhythm or their passion in certain matches and it hasn't looked like a nervousness Whereas because we all know what to expect from Liverpool and where their goals will come from and who their stars are, if they're not doing wonderful stuff, I think there is... People just around the club get jittery because you know what you need from Liverpool for them to win and if it's not happening, then they, there, is a sl- there is more of a nervousness to them than City when it goes wrong, I think. Mm. Is that a nature of the atmosphere at Anfield? Because it was interesting. Mm. There was just this explosion of euphoria and relief when that goal went in? Yeah, I, I, I think Anfield is, is a fabulous place to, to go and watch football and I can only imagine what it's like to, 
to, to play and you know it just must be amazing when things the energy and the positive energy that that sort of must blow the team on it's absolutely fantastic I mean he's, yesterday you couldn't get away from the fact that I thought Liverpool were much the better team in the first half and then after half time Spurs reorganised rejigged uh, tactically and I thought that for much of the second half Spurs were the better team and then you could almost feel the kind of the nervousness and the, the the anticipation sort of kind of coming through really it, from from the Anfield crowd and it's always been thus, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I've been there on on big European nights when the crowd blows the the opponents away. Absolutely fantastic! It's an amazing, irresistible energy which gives Liverpool the, this incredible momentum, which without doubt fires them onto onto fantastic and memorable victories. But at the same time, the downside is on occasion when you feel that the, the, the opposition is coming into the game as Spurs indeed were yesterday. I thought for 10 minutes before Spurs scored, you could almost feel the goal coming. Mm. Spurs had changed the momentum and the energy in the team. And during that time, you could feel there was a nervousness, there was a tension within the ground. And, and that's the flip side to it. But then the energy that it gives you when Liverpool score that goal, we shouldn't underestimate, I think, how big that win yesterday was for Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. Because if they drop two points and, and basic Man City play Wednesday night with their game in hand against Cardiff, a struggling team right now, then Man City would have been so up. And basically they could have gone three points clear, um, superior goal difference at, at this stage in time. You'd have to say it was it was arguably two two results clear of Liverpool during the running. Mm. And, you, you know, now Liverpool have basically saying, we're staying, we're not going away. And that puts an added pressure on Man City in their approach for that Cardiff game. We all expect Man City to beat Cardiff, but it won't seem quite as attractive a fixture as, as it would have done at 88 minutes yesterday. It just wouldn't have. And, and I think Liverpool have really struck a blow in this title race with that defiant. They didn't play particularly nowhere near their best or particularly well in that second half. But to get the job done is a huge statement. In that context, Ali, um, do Spurs hold the key to City's season in terms of obviously you've got your two Champions League games followed, I think, on the 20th of this month by the, the trip to the Etihad? So are Spurs the kingmakers here? Probably. I mean, you can make a very good case for it. It is intriguing when... T I mean, it's intriguing enough... I think it always happens, doesn't it, when the draw's made for any cup competition. You just guarantee there'll be quite a lot of teams who are playing the same team in the league and then three days later they're playing in the, in the cup. They always clutch together. But this is really intriguing because you've got, the, you've got three matches close together. And you can throw in a brand new stadium, an mm. unknown factor. You, honestly, that could work. You talked about Anfield on a European night. Well, we're, we're about to find out very quickly what the difference is between um, Tottenham's new stadium during the day, Tottenham's new stadium during a league game at night, and what Tottenham stadium is like under the floodlights when it's a European game, mm. albeit one against domestic opposition. And in the league, they've got five of their last seven games at home. But we don't, we don't know yet whether that, that equally lifts the opposition. I know there's a huge difference between uh, West Ham moving and Spurs moving, but... One's moved um, to a football stadium, the other... Yeah, yeah, OK, fair enough. And also, <laughs> also, what's happened to Spurs is a lot of clubs have come to Wembley, Spurs' temporary home, and, and found that to, to lift them. It's lifted the opposition more than the home team. Home fans didn't like going to Wembley stayed away in large numbers by the end, didn't seem to give the home team any sense of entitlement or privilege to be playing there. And yet you had teams going there going, yippee, we're playing you know, mm. the, the, the home of football. This is amazing. And you've, it, it sort of worked against Spurs. So what will happen? We, we just don't know. We just don't know whether Spurs will just fall in love as a team and fans with the new stadium and it become a, a wall of noise they're trying to create and it overwhelms the opposition or whether it, you know, it, it gives them a lift as well. On um, John and I were both at Craven Cottage on Saturday and uh, Pep Guardiola said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll train at the new stadium, but that'll be their first taste of it. Mm. And then he's got to get to grips with the vibe, the lighting, the mood, the grass. Everything will be brand new for 
for his team, but it'll be almost as new for Spurs. So it's, it's not just that they're meeting three times very tightly close together. It's just all the other factors as well. Plus, what will we see City play very differently in those three games? Or will we see Spurs try and play very differently in those three games? That one of the spooky things about football, I think, is that two teams can meet in Europe, but you call it Europe and they're both English and they play completely differently. It shouldn't, but it, it happens. It happened with, with Man City and Liverpool when they faced each other in the Champions League. They were completely different teams. Isn't that teams. partly a knock-on because of the ridiculous nature of the away guy rule? I hate the away guy <laughs> But it's, it's a nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. You've got, like, you know, two, two English teams, fantastic Premier League level, playing slightly different way, and they're very nervous about the away goal. Mm. They're being refereed by, by a foreign referee... And we're seeing sort of challenges and decisions that would probably go unpunished and, and sort of get away with in the Premier League. And it, it's, it's a bizarre, but it makes it much more exciting, obviously, yeah. because it's just so different, yeah. isn't it? And it will, I think, honestly, the new stadium, I think, will give Spurs. It will just be so exciting, I think, to, to see this new stadium. I can't, honestly, I think Spurs and the way that they've stayed in the local area, because that is such a deprived area of North London, one of the worst areas of, of North London. I can say that because I don't live a million miles away from there. Mm. Um, it, 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 you know, it's fantastic credit to that football club and it's trying to sort of, you know, reinvigorate Tottenham. But do you remember being a kid and it being your yeah. birthday party and everyone coming to your house, you know, your paddling pool in the garden? It was your day, but it was just too much. It just felt too much and you didn't enjoy it at all. Well, you just retreated to and your just, bedroom. Just, yes, just, just had a sulk or a tantrum. or well, I did. <laughs> or, you know, it's, it doesn't automatically mean you're going to enjoy it when all the pressure is on you to enjoy it. No, and I agree with that. I don't know about your paddling pool, but <laughs> I, what I would say is that the vast majority, even of opening games, have been very difficult for... You know, it, it was difficult for Arsenal in that first season. It was a difficult sort of entry into the Emirates. It was difficult for Southampton. Southampton found found it difficult to find their feet. Look at Sunderland, the ups and downs. But actually, the Stadium of Light it, it, it is a stadium that actually has, has encapsulated the atmosphere and, and really sort of kind of when the atmosphere is good, it is really good. But it's it's a really difficult bedding in period. I think Spurs face really difficult challenges over the next few weeks in the running and also for, for, for the Champions League quarterfinal. It's, it's a massive, it should be a massive occasion, but it has got this danger of being something overwhelming and inhibiting for Spurs. It's a real, it's a real issue. And it, it was interesting to see the sort of Pochettino talk about the, the need to train, as you mentioned, in, in sort of the, in the ground, get used to it. Because I know it sounds really obvious, but it's sight lines, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, about sort of the fullback knowing where his line is and everything like that. It, it, you, the margins are so fine mm. that, it, that you absolutely have to know that ground. And the goalkeeper in particular. I mean, blimey, Hugo Lloris needs every help that he can get at the moment. Yeah. But it's how, how, how big a problem is Lloris becoming to them potentially? Well, I, I'm a massive fan of Lloris and I think that's. I think some of the criticism that he's had is, is, is harsh because I still think he's one of the world's best. And I, I think he's sort of kind of... He's, he's the, almost the perfect compromise between the sweeper-keeper and a really good goalkeeper. Um, and I think he's important to Spurs. But I think it's really interesting that a lot of the players, a lot of crucial players who are at the World Cup... Um, I think their level has dropped, and Lloris is certainly one of those one of those players. I think it's this kind of the the mental stress and strain of being at a tournament without a break the following season. I think that Lloris isn't as bad as 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 all that, but I think without doubt within the next two years, Spurs, and arguably sooner after after yesterday, Spurs will have to look towards maybe getting a new goalkeeper. But I still think that Lloris, when he's focused and in form, he's still, in my eyes, one of the best five in the world. But I just think that, that maybe last, last summer in the World Cup and everything that went with it, of course, he's had problems on and off the field this season, I think has taken a mental and physical toll 
on Lloris. And I think that's why you've had one or two mistakes. But I, I really don't think he, he's as bad as some of the analysis that I think sort of followed the game at Anfield. It's a catastrophic mistake. It's cost his team, of course. But I, I, I think he's saved more, saved more. I mean, look, we could re-examine it. Look at the last-minute penalty save against Arsenal. I mean, it wasn't a very good penalty, but my word, what a penalty save. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he, he's still a very, very good goalkeeper who's made a terrible mistake. Yeah. How important is squad depth going to be? And, you know, when we talk about squad depth, we automatically think of Manchester City. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FA Cup's next on their agenda. Brighton, I thought was very significant. You know, Chris Hutton's reaction immediately after the draw, it was, well, OK, here we go. Um, when you look at City... Um, how do you think they'll approach the FA Cup semi-final? Well, Guardiola says he doesn't plot it out. He doesn't think, I've got three days before that game and then I'm playing in that one and then plot which players he thinks might be best suited or need a rest. He says he look plays the match he's playing and then assesses it afterwards. I suspect that's not entirely true, to be honest, because you, I, you just you don't become a manager of that calibre without doing both, mm. <laughs> concentrating on the next game, but also having an overarching plan of action. I mean, if if they're not going to win the quadruple, then you have to assume that there will be mistakes made in the juggling. That, that you have to assume having such depth, and they have more depth than anybody. They have, you know. Every time you go to a city game and look at the subs bench, you think, mm. for goodness sake, although, you know, it's ridiculous. Why aren't they playing? Oh, that's why they're not playing, because the people who are playing are amazing. It's, it's, it, they, they have great depth and they're all, their players are getting fit now. They're not trailing off. They're not suddenly suffering lots of injury crises. Everyone seems to be getting fit. And, at the same and they're time. almost having, like, as you, you, know, you were both at Fulham, that was a training session, wasn't it? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and you know, Neil Warnock, I hope he was joking, but he said... Um, War- Warnock never jokes. OK. Well, he said, I might play my under-23s against Man City midweek. Well, I mean, that, he might be joking, he might not, but managers do of opposition teams do often take the view, we cannot compete with City. So let's just think of... They think of the game afterwards, and they think of a game against City as giving a bit of a rest to players who might be on, you know, on the cusp of needing one. But if you've got a player on the cusp of needing a rest, when do you rest him? You, play, you don't rest him in the game you think you might get a point out of if you're struggling. You rest him in the game you think you won't get a point out of. Mm. And that, is, that will help City through the season. That Quite a lot of their games are training sessions, as you say, because the opposition, whether they mean to or not, are also treating it like one. They're not giving everything because they don't believe they can compete against them. But what I was going to say was the only potential downside to having such depth is that you over-juggle and you do, you're not brave enough to stick with the same team for, say, four games on the trot. Uh, and then you pull people in and out and it doesn't quite click. Because occasionally, as I've said, City when City fail, it's because they don't click. It's not nerves, they just don't click. He's got the... You know, the number's wrong. He's, he's put them all together in slightly the wrong places and it's just not clicking. So sometimes being blessed with so much talent, <laughs> I'm clutching at straws slightly, it can be a, it can be a downside because you, you, you just need to, to, to punch in the right holes in the right, in the right way. It's, it's a, like a complicated computer programme, really, when you've got that many good players. Mm. So if you're Chris Hutton, John, um, how do you attack Manchester City? You know, where are the weaknesses? Is it going to be a set piece? Is it going to be something that Glenn Murray produces out of nothing? How are you going to make up the obvious gap in, in class, which is there whether you know, we respect you know, Brighton or not? Well, we, I mean, we do respect Brighton, and I think Brighton sometimes, I think they sort of play almost within themselves and play a very sort of game not to get beaten, and I can understand why they do that. And I think that the... Their issue will be, I think, Brighton, if you look at their results and look at their score lines, despite their, and it is becoming a little bit precarious, although I, what I would say is Cardiff's defeat obviously means that they've still got a bit of a cushion there. But, but Brighton just do not lose heavily. They're, they're very, very difficult, even when they lose, and or their form recently hasn't been good at all. 
just a very, very tight and compact. And the way that he sets up is so difficult to break down. His defensive unit is so incredibly tight and tough that their understanding between that and then the midfield protection is incredibly, incredibly well-drilled. They will always create chances. I mean, even against Southampton when, when they lost at the weekend, you know, they, they, they hit the woodwork. They could have got something from the game. They're very, very difficult to break down. That I think their approach will remain exactly the same against Man City, and that is trying to keep the score tight, trying to keep it keep it down, and looking for Solly March or Anthony Knockhart to create a little bit of magic, a little bit of space, and a set piece. Because from set pieces, whether it be Lewis Dunk or you know earlier in the season Duffy, it, it, they're always and Glenn Murray still remains a prolific goal-getter for them and a, and a threat on set-pieces, much more so than running onto balls. We have to be realistic about that. But that is that is where their threat will come from, that if they can remain in the game in the latter part of, of the second half, then they will, then they will be dangerous from set-pieces. Oh, you know, Chris Hewton such a lovely bloke. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't know, anyone doesn't really, really like Absolutely, Chris Hewton. Yeah. Fantastic. But that, that means we forget he's more than capable of creating a siege mentality, of, of, of instilling in his players a sense of not being overawed by the occasion and being brave enough to be boring, boring for 91 minutes if necessary. Yeah. Which I think... And it's, City, it's also it a bit be. of a free hit for him because everyone expects them to lose yeah. and they haven't got that sort of overarching pressure of a Premier League game, given, you know, as you say, John, they're in a precarious position. Yeah, and, and if, if you, he will look at the, um, the Carabao Cup final, where City never really sparked in that match. And uh, Chelsea were quite clever, and they were very, very patient and frustrated City. And, you know, it, 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 you know overall, although penalty shooter, penalty shooter... Um, Overall, Chelsea looked like they could do it because they were tactically making City feel quite frustrated. And he will look at that and he will, he will tell his players, don't get overexcited by being at Wembley. It's only a semi-final. Man for man, they're much better than us. But psychologically, you know, we are, we are Brighton and we can. If, we're, if we stick to what we know and do what we know we can do well, we, might, we, might, we just might nick it. And as you say, and if we don't, so what? What he really needs is to stay in the Premier League anyway, and this is this is this is bonus football. But I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say to people watching it, I expect it to be a six nil. I just don't think it will be. Mm. Let's look at the other semi final, John. Um, common denominators between Wolves and and Watford: highly organised, efficient coaches, mm. Nuno and, and Garcia, and specialist, quite sophisticated recruitment systems, either the Pozzo model or the Mendes Chinese money model. Um, that's the fascination for me of this tie, is you've got two of the clubs who could be the next to push on to the top six. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that Watford, you know, I've been critical of in the past, mm. constantly changing the manager, and I just don't think... In, Sometimes that provides a sort of stability and, and platform to work on. But I just think that they, they also deserve an awful lot of credit for, you know, they've had some, some risky managers, but it's still a massive achievement, I think, for Watford still to, you know, to, to almost sound patronising, to, to remain in the Premier League. And they've done that with, you know, the, the Matsaris in the past. And, and now they've found a really bright, progressive manager in Javi Grazia, who... Gets the best out of his out of his players. I, I think it's interesting the way that if you look at the course of the season, whereby he sort of kind of picked teams and players for specific games. Earlier in the season, he's clearly his priority was definitely the, the the Premier League and and stability in the Premier League. So he rested completely. Well, he's made, he was making picked, eleven changes. Absolutely, he? picked a completely different team at Newcastle earlier in the season in the cup. Mm. And then all of a sudden, he's done exactly the same thing in reverse at Man City <laughs> and nearly, by the way, got, got a result because they actually pushed City in, in, during that game. Um, and uh, had it not been for controversial decisions, who knows what the end outcome might have been. So I think he, he's a really progressive manager and he's, he's, he's certainly bought into 
and he's used, I thought Troy Deeney, for example, was on his way out and it didn't fit particularly in, in previous regimes and, and under, under managers. He's got him fitter, he's got him more hungry, he's got him as the sort of kind of the figurehead of the team again. Um, he's sort of kind of bought into the, the whole um, uh, Gomez in goal, you know, sort of kind of he's picked him. He's a bit of a fairy tale through the round. By the way, will he pick him this weekend? That's, yeah. a, that's the story. I don't, I'm not he, sure that he, he will. He's got to pick Foster. Well, he? this it, it's a great debate. And I think that, you know, we will soon find out about the fairy tale of the cup because I think you're probably right. I think he will. It felt like after that game at, at Vicarage Road and everyone said, oh, that's... They're saying they're getting emotional with Gomez because it was Gomez's last game, potentially, at Vicarage Road. To me, it felt as if it might be Gomez's last game, full stop. Oh, I was at that, I was at that Palace game in, in, in the last round. And you know, Gomez has always had this history of being you know, a bit like an octopus in a blender. Isn't he? He's all over the place, <laughs> isn't he? And it was really interesting. At the end of that game, he was the last person to leave the pitch and he went round and... It was. It had the feeling of a sort of a farewell moment. I don't know. Maybe I was being a bit. So he's let his manager off the hook, then, hasn't he? By by doing that, I yeah. would say. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't mean he's killing the fairy tale if he doesn't pick it. Oh, you've got to get your. You've got to pick your best players. You've got to be heartless in this situation. Well, unless I'll unless you've always... guaranteed a player something. Well. Then I don't think. I'm sorry, but even then. Well, then <laughs> Man, you, you, you're a hard man. You undermine. You are, but listen, we've, we've had this before with Sari and sort of, you know, Sari in my mind wanted to bring on. This wasn't Kepper an injury. This was a pre pre organised idea in Sari's mind, in my view, to bring on Cavallero because he was a penalty specialist. That was definitely what happened. And sorry, but you've got to be brutal. You've got to be brutal about this. Wenger always used to pick his second-choice goalkeeper for, for the Cups. And then sometimes I, I thought he, he would pick Ospina rather than check for, for a big game because he's given his word to Ospina. Ospina's a far inferior goalkeeper to Petr Cech. I mean, it's ridic absolutely ridiculous. And so you're picking your second best. What message does that sound? It's, it's a real dilemma because everyone loves... You know, Gomez, what a great story. But Foster has been one of the best goalkeepers, bar none, this season in the Premier League. He's been absolutely terrific. But the, the one thing at Watford, Ali, is that the, the business plan, you know, is written in blood. Mm. And essentially, Decore is probably going to be the next big money signing out of there. You know, that, that's the next sale. He could leave them by getting them to a final because he and Capoue are probably going to be the key figures in that team on Saturday, on, uh, on Sunday, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I like John. I, I've been critical of Watford in the past as well. I've got a horrible feeling. I, I thought they might provide the first sacking of the season. How stupid was that? <laughs> but they've got such a tradition of as soon as it wobbles, just, you know, guillotine, OK, we'll start again. There is what... Uh, there's a lot that's impressive about Watford, but I think probably most, most people would say it's their midfield. You're absolutely right. And I think we forget how hard it is to find midfielders who have, they're, they're, they can pass, they're intuitive, they're hardworking, they can battle, they can time tackles well. So if, you, if you've got midfielders who can do those things, not, you know, not just, and, and to know when to do it as well. So the other the impressive thing about Watford is uh, one nil ahead. They don't, they don't, they, 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 they're, they're, the management of the game so good, and that comes from a very, very intelligent midfield. And they'll need, they'll need, they'll need all the intelligence they can get because I think probably if you were to say, apart from you know teams beginning with W, which two teams have surprised you by their tactical intelligence this season? It would be uh, Watford and Wolves, actually. And I love the way that Nuno sets up his teams depending on who they're playing, and they. They follow his instructions to the letter. If he says we're going to bore the life out of everyone for 75 minutes, that's what they will do. They will, they're just so good at, again, managing the teams, which could lead to a game that is horribly sterile or it could, it, they, it could just implode and we just see, see some, some fantastic football. I have no idea which way it'll go. But it will be, you're absolutely right, for, for, on both sides, it's about midfield intelligence and patience. I've done pieces with... Um... A couple of Wolves players this season, you know, Colin Coley and, and, and Moutinho, and they're both obviously varying ends of the scales, but being at really, really top clubs. 
and the way that they buy into Nuno and his in his coaching and his vision, his messages, the the philosophy, the the way that they play, his vision is just, you know, as you rightly say, Erson, he's you know he's got them absolutely believing they will do they will run through brick walls for mm. this guy. I mean, you know, Connor Cody says without doubt he's, he's by far and away the best manager. That, that he's come across and, he, and his vision and the way that he gets them, them playing is great. He's been able to attract, because it goes beyond just just kind of the, the accusation, oh, they're just, you know, they're buying through, through an agent that basically get the, those players. The players that are of a calibre that want to play for this guy, they believe in his system, they believe in his style, but he, he's gone also beyond that because he's, He's held on to the players that were already there. He's developed the likes of a Matt Doherty, for example, who earlier in the season, for my mind, was was fantastic. For all the teams that play with wing-backs, he was right up there, I thought. I think Patricio is arguably one of the best keepers in the league. You know, they've got fantastic midfield talent. You know, Jimenez has been, has been terrific. They, they really are... A very, very exciting team. For us to be talking about them in such glowing terms, I know they had a bad result at Burnley, mm. but they still played well. In the first season up, is a remarkable leap. And, it, you know, it wasn't ridiculous overall wholesale changes. He's bled the new players in, in gradually. And that, that, that is a fabulous achievement. If they can reach an FA Cup final on the back of the season, mm. it'd be really, really impressive. But it's fascinating what... what... I mean, what will Nuno, What do you think Nuno will do? Because I think we can predict in most matches how Wolves will set up. So if they're playing a top six team, especially if they're playing them away from home, they do this very cautious waiting game and then they pounce. They struggled against, like they did, against teams uh, that are bottom half the table and are themselves negative. But how will Nuno how will Nuno assess the challenge? Because Watford are neither a really big team, not, they're nowhere near being a poor team, and they're on neutral territory, and both teams have nothing to, nothing else to play for. Both teams really need this. It's not going to impinge on anything else they do. They really want to get to the, the final. So I don't, I I'm intrigued as to whether Nuno tells his players they're the underdogs or whether he. I don't know. I, I'm sort of struggling I know to know mean. how he'll yeah, psychologically yeah. approach yeah, it. Yeah, Moutinho's view on it was that basically against the bigger teams, you probably get a little bit more time on the ball because you're playing sort of more quality opposition. Whereas against the lesser teams, it's almost a bit more frenetic. Mm. And and I actually I can understand that because Wolves' results against the top six, I mean, fantastic. Mm. And even in games where they're, they're basically their drop points against Chelsea. Well, they should have won against Chelsea, yes, shouldn't, yes, they? shouldn't yes. they? I mean, it's but do just... they treat Watford like a top six club? Well, I think it's more about what Watford do them. The top six occasion. Yeah, yes. I think that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. but I, th I think that Watford will be more standoffish. So I think then that basically the, the way that Watford set up, I think it was almost like two counter-attacking teams yeah. set up against each other. Really, it will be interesting. You know, you mentioned there, John, about. You know, a group of players buying into a coach or a manager. Um, you know, the narrative is that all the Man United players are bought into Oli, who's at the wheel, apparently, whatever that means. <laughs> um, you look at that squad, it will be rebuilt by the sheer weight of money and corporate ambition. <clears throat> but will they lose any players? Now, I'm thinking of Pogba here, Paul Pogba. You know, there's this little courtship dance already started by Zidane at Madrid, Will Pogba eventually think to himself, I can expand my brand in Madrid? <laughs> well, he will expand his brand if he goes to Madrid. There's no doubt about it. And I don't... Oh, the key to it all is whether... It, it doesn't matter what happens with Pogba, whether he stays or goes. What matters is, is how it's portrayed and how Solskjaer is seen to have handled it. Because it should emerge, whatever happens, it should look like it's what Solskjaer wanted or encouraged to happen. So Solskjaer is going to face an early test of his demeanour as a manager, his status, if he was to, and I don't think he would do anything as stupid as this, but if he was to go public about, we under no circumstances will United lose a player of Pogba's stature, 
We, do, we are not intimidated by Real Madrid. We will not be held to ransom. We want Pogba to stay and then Pogba left. Then he'd look stupid. But he has to, Solskjaer has to navigate it cleverly, I think. And he has to decide how much of what Pogba says on social media is just that side of him and whether he's got to know him properly as a player and can calculate that actually what he really wants is to stay at Man United and for us to try and win the league and for him to be an integral part of that and to make history at, at a club that helped shape him. So he has to... And I think Solskjaer, from what I can gather, does have that empathy and that ability to get to know young players and work out what they want. So it's, I don't think it matters if they lose Pogba unless it's seen as they lost in some way it's a battle that they lost if they did if he did go to Real Madrid they'd get a hell of a lot of dosh for him and it would just have to be reinvested properly I don't I don't I don't I've never seen a match well I've seen a couple but I've, I've only seen a couple of matches where I thought oh Man United couldn't have won that without Paul Pogba he's not been the dominant force in 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 the Premier League that he promised to be so if they could make a profit on him and lose someone who's sometimes slightly embarrassing with what he says and distracting as well, then that would be absolutely fine. But equally, if they felt they knew the player well and he, he, he actually, despite the flirtations, wanted to make history with Manchester United and kept hold of him, that would, that would be a great outcome also. Do you expect quite a lot of business done there in the summer, John? You know, there's already, um, it looks like um, Aaron uh, Wan-Bissaka at, at Palace is going to be one of their first targets. A lot of money spent, a lot of column inches devoted to it. <laughs> yeah, I do really. It's obvious, isn't it, that basically um, I think they'll have to look at a right back. Um, they've, got, they've got a big issue there. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with Pogba. Um, I think I, I, I think they need three top quality signings, basically. I mean, the right back, I think, is absolutely crucial. Juan Basaka is a lot of pressure on. I mean, obviously, he's, I'm sure he's on their list, but the, the, I, I do think they'll have to look to, to really strengthen because I think the gap still, even though Solskjaer has improved them dramatically, the gap between the top two and the rest in the Premier League, I think is, will still take a lot of bridging, really. And that's not just for Man United. It's for, it's for Tottenham, it's for Chelsea, it's for Arsenal. There's a, the, the, the top two are really in danger, I think, of breaking away. And if I had to name one... That, that could possibly push on next season and kind of push those top two if they make the right investments this summer than it is Manchester United. Because I do think that Solskjaer has inherited a squad with great potential. You know, I mean, with, without doubt, they've got the best goal in the world. He's got them defending better. He's got the best out of Luke Shaw. He's got a better midfield balance. But that midfield needs surgery, in, in my view, because, you know, I think... Matic is is a good player, and he's certainly playing much better under Solskjaer. But then he's got to have the right kind Declan, of. That's a Declan Rice shape well, hold, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, it will be in, it will be really interesting that with, with Declan Rice because he he impressed so much on his England debut. All of a sudden, he's 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 gone from being kind of making really the right moves with with West Ham and looking really good for West Ham. And suddenly sort of saying, well, actually, he's probably got the, the ability at international level. Once you've got the ability at an international level, you can probably play in the Champions League. So you can bet your bottom dollar that basically a lot of clubs will now be looking at. I'll be ever so disappointed and surprised if if basically goes this summer. I think he'll probably stay for a little bit yet, surely. Well, uh, West Ham, you know, have, have almost issued a come and get him play, haven't they? You know, in, he's, he's obviously, if, that, if someone comes along with a, with a, a shed load of money... They'll take it. Yeah, I th I, probably. But I just think that with, with Rice, I think what's really great is that sort of... Uh, listen, West Ham had a bad result on the weekend. Yeah. But I think they've made decent strides on, under Manuel Pellegrini, actually. Yeah. And I think that sort of... Their, their midfield makeup and balance has been enhanced by, by Rice. But Rice is still a player who I think is riding that crest of the wave. And sometimes you do have a dip as a, as a young player. And I'm sure that will come. But I just think that he... I think West Ham is still a good grounding for young players and they give young players a good chance as, as they've done with Rice and they've developed him and they've not been afraid to play him going from centre-half into, into midfield and they've been creative with him they've given him that platform mm. I, I still think he might be there for a while yet yeah. West Ham are 
uh, Chelsea next Monday. Will Sarri be there? Well, he probably will. I mean, they did win at the weekend. Let's not forget that. Honestly, it is interesting the way results are reinterpreted. You could say, you could say there was a club who rested two, their two most crucial players in Canty and Hazard and therefore didn't quite click and the opposition did better than expected and there was booing from the Chelsea fans and yet they had the resilience and the togetherness to summon a result and that's supposed to make a manager look good and supported by his players and to make him look like he's someone who's got some flexibility and an ability, you know, to keep to keep players on side when times are difficult. But no, instead, most people are interpreting it as, well, it doesn't really matter what the result was. Chelsea still play very badly because what they mean is they Chelsea, Chelsea are still balling. playing Sarri ball. That's what this, that's the problem. It's not, Ch- about, Ch- it's not about that result. It's uh, about how he plays. Ch- Chelsea have bred this, haven't they, themselves? Yeah. By this constant managerial change and then basically also the fact is that basically there's this feeling that, that that if the Chelsea fans can't take to Sarri, then they'll have to get rid of Sarri. Well, good luck with that, because Chelsea fans <laughs> won't take to Sarri. Well, unfortunately, this comes from a long history of not then supporting a manager through, through difficult times. Personally, I, I'm not completely convinced that Sarri is suited to Chelsea, and it's just one of those things that maybe might not fit. But I think they'll leave it till the summer, by which time... Chelsea have this amazing opportunity to go and win the Europa League because I, I, because of the run of fixtures that Chelsea have got, Chelsea are well capable of winning that trophy. That would be a European trophy, a passport back into the Champions League, which at the moment looks very much up in the air for the, for the top four places. They will probably lose Hazard. They will probably suffer the, this um, transfer window ban. And then they can make a change to a, a younger, perhaps more ambitious manager who can bring in some younger players. It might just be the shot in the arm that Chelsea need, but it doesn't. The negativity at the moment around from the from the fans towards Sarri is just a bridge that's not going to be. I don't think it's, it's overwhelming, and and it it did have. You know, I take your point about you know results can you know camouflage anything, but they were appalling in, in for seventy five percent of that game. The fans were basically openly in, in, in rebellion from about 15 minutes onwards. Jorginho, who is his totemic figure in the team, was jeered when he was substituted. They've reached the point and they return, haven't they? Under normal circumstances, but the, the owner isn't that bothered at the moment. And it doesn't make... In, in no way does it make sense to, to sack him tomorrow, for example. Because, as John says, the, there's... They certainly look very likely to get to the Europa League final. We don't know who they'd meet there. I've always felt it's always going to be Napoli v Chelsea in the Europa League final because the narrative's too compelling. You're putting a great deal of faith in Arsenal, then. No, <laughs> no, only because, only no, because, only because. Yeah. yeah, it's just Football too irresistible. Like it's too that. irresistible yeah, yeah. that you know the the, Ta- the two. Talking of being irresistible. Talking of irresistible things. I just want to end. Or just we're coming to the end. Neil Warnock. You know, there was a fantastic double teapot yesterday, wasn't there? <laughs> Were there also double standards? Well, yeah, because the... Listen, I, I've got a few views on this, and I do quite like... I declare an interest. I do quite like Neil Warnock. I think he's a, he's a character in the game. But, look, the thing is about that is that I don't... I wouldn't condone the way that, that, that we reacted. And also, bearing in mind, back in November... Uh, it was Cardiff who were the beneficiaries mm. of a ridiculously but also incredibly similar 90th minute win exactly. from, from Salt Bamba. And it's, 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 it's just there. It's, it's a 2-1 win. And basically, Neil Warnock then, I don't remember these quotes particularly, but basically saying, oh, it's, it's, it's you know, I've, I've had this luck coming, basically. It's a bit of luck and sort of, you know, my missus told me that it was, it was going to happen in the tea leaves. And my luck would change. So... I just think, though, that it would that completely overlooks the fact that in a red rage of temper, Neil Warnock could possibly bring himself to remember that four months ago he was the lucky one, whereas Brighton and Chris Hewton 
who acted with far more uh, reservation and class and, and, and basically had a moan at the, about the officials and the goal and then put it to bed, but didn't go off, off the scale about that. But where I think I do have sympathy with Neil Warnock on this, and by the way, Neil Warnock will unquestionably get charged. It's, a no, it's obviously a no-brainer, and he has to, really, because you can't really act like that, is that the standard of officiating in the Premier League right now is at an all-time low. It's, it was That decision yesterday was so bad. And yes, Neil Warnock behaved rather badly, but anyone that cannot understand when you think of what's at stake, and this is, could be the biggest moment in his career by keeping Cardiff up, and Cardiff are a lower-end championship squad. They really are. And for him to even be in with a shout of keeping them up is a remarkable achievement. I'm sorry, anyone that can't understand his, his anger at that point you're not getting the passion of the game. Am I excusing it? No, but I'm just trying to explain it, basically. But the standard of officials, Mike, is a shocker. No, I take that point. Absolutely that point. unbelievable. And people will talk about VAR, but we're also expecting the same group of officials to implement the VAR. So will VAR be solved as soon as VAR... Will these decisions be solved? I'm not completely convinced, because the reason why that VAR on occasion, when we've experimented with it, has been a dog's dinner and been an absolute disaster, is because we have pretty poor officials mm. trying to use VAR. The, the standard's at an all-time low. It's a crisis of, of refereeing. It really is. We've got a couple of two or three good ones, but the rest, come on, should be nowhere near it. Mm. Cardiff, you know, they've got their own problems. It looks like probably relegation could be decided by a you know, game at Burnley in a couple of weeks. But I just want to look a little bit higher to finish. Just a very quick uh, response, please. Uh, we started talking about Manchester City and the quadruple. How many trophies will they win? Ali? Two, and they've already won one. They'll win the FA Cup. John? Ooh, who's going to win the Champions League then? Probably Liverpool or Barcelona. OK, I, th I think they'll win three. They'll miss out on? <laughs> <laughs> I think they might miss out in the Premier League. Funny that, I think they'll end up with three as well. Destiny calls for Liverpool. They'll win the league. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>